0: Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Grand, Janet Reitman, Tom Juneau, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, de Gregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Gengri the podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism Program at Fairfield University. The Bachelor of Arts degree in Digital Journalism is a rigorous 12-course program designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to take part in today's quickly changing media world. The podcast is also brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. The college grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. To learn more about the Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I'm going to replay the interview I did with Mike Wilson in May of 2015. Wilson was just named a deputy editor for Enterprise in Sports at the New York Times. When we did this interview, Wilson had just been named editor of the Dallas Morning News. Wilson has a long track record of supporting journalists who write narratives. When he was at the Tampa Bay Times, he worked with a number of reporters who've been on this show. Ben Montgomery, Lane DeGregory, Michael Cruz, Kelly Benham French, Leonora LaPeter Le Anton, John Woodrow Cox, and more. They're all excellent storytellers. That, in Wilson's mind, is important, especially in news organizations. These
1: stories are how we, uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're how we communicate with loved ones. Um, so it's, it's very elemental stuff for human beings, so it's only natural that, you know, telling stories as journalists would be, would also be really important.
0: When Wilson was a top editor at the Tampa Bay Times, the newspaper started publishing Encounters. The front page series consisted of short, interesting stories that one would not define traditionally as news.
1: Supposed to be a a really enjoyable five to six minute read. You know, the Michael Cruz story about the the guy teaching his daughter to ride a bike, there was, there was absolutely nothing special about that story. And then everything was special mm-hmm. about it. Like it described, it described this moment that, you know, probably just about every parent has been through of, you know, setting up your child on two wheels for the first time and letting go and watching them to, you know, take those few, those first few kind of halting Pedaling steps forward, and uh, and, and it, it was just this absolutely beautiful capturing of a universal
0: moment. As usual, I've linked to all of the stories that Wilson and I talk about on the website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. Just a side note the website has been redesigned, so it should be much easier to find every episode that I've done. Once more, that is gangrythepodcast.com. That's G A N. G R E Y, the Podcast dot com. Mike, thanks for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh first things first, uh, how's Dallas?
1: Uh, Dallas is terrific. You know, um I've been here about a hundred days now, and I've seen a lot more of the uh uh, you know, the the interior of the Dallas Morning News building than I have of the city, but what I've seen of the city I've really enjoyed. It's much more uh cosmopolitan and interesting than the stereotypes would have you
0: believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how has your first 100 days been uh, as you're getting to know the newspaper and, and you're back in newspapers after a one-year hiatus? But how's, how's the newspaper?
1: Well, um, the, the thing that strikes me first is how um, how skilled and dedicated the staff is here. Um, you know, I came in with a mandate to make us a much stronger um, storytelling organization and a much stronger digital organization and uh, on the digital part I wondered if you know our very experienced um, staff would would resist that idea and that hasn't been my experience at all Um, people are excited about um, you know all the ways we can tell stories online and and they're just uh, they're eager to get going so um, so it's it's been really a lot of fun to get to know the people here and get talking about how we can tell stories better.
0: Mhm. Um I know uh, a lot of the stories that I saw when when it was first kind of announced that you were going to Dallas talked about you as a champion of storytelling. Um can you talk a little bit about why you think that's important for a newspaper?
1: Yeah, I think it's um it's important for for a news organization um because it's important to human beings, right? That these stories are how we uh, how we understand the world, they're how we share our experiences. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're how we communicate with loved ones. Um, so it's it's very elemental stuff for human beings. So it's only natural that you know telling stories as journalists would be would also be really important. Um, but just in a in a sort of more um, practical day-to-day sense, I, I came up as a journalist among really great storytellers at um, at the Miami Herald. And the St. Pete uh, slash Tampa Bay Times. Um, so, you know, all of my teachers uh, in journalism were interested in stories, and um, and it was kind of natural for me to to follow their example.
0: Why do you think newspapers have kind of a, a lot a lot of newspapers, uh, not not some, but a lot, have kind of gotten away from that storytelling? Why do you think that is?
1: I I I guess I'm I'm thinking about the premise of your question and whether I whether I completely agree with mm-hmm. it. So um I am not sure what we mean when we talk about newspapers okay. now by the way. Um you know so every every newspaper really now is a is a is a news organization that publishes digitally and in print. Um uh so I think that there there's actually a lot more good storytelling um being done um Particularly digitally, by traditional news organizations, than maybe they get credit for. Uh, so if you look at you know one of the one of the leading new digital organizations among old media is the Washington Post, mm-hmm. um, and the Post has uh, some very very effective storytellers who are using you know not just like the great writing skills that they've always had there, but um, but also using digital tools, um, you know uh, graphics, video, all kinds of. All kinds of means to tell stories online. Uh, I do. I, I will sort of concede to you that um, as as news organizations have gotten smaller, um, they've maybe invested less in the kind of really interesting enterprise that uh, you know that you and I like the most. Mm-hmm. So, so fair enough. I mean, maybe there's not enough sort of St. Pete Times slash Tampa Bay Times kind of um, you know deep storytelling organizations uh, out there, but I, I still think there's some pretty good stories being told.
0: And it seems like I think a lot of that, maybe that slack that maybe is not happening in newspapers. And I, I hate to, use, yeah, the news, the term newspapers is, is almost an archaic term now because they are publishing in, and not just paper anymore. Uh, but a lot of the slack has been picked up online by like upstart uh, uh, companies and, and and you know uh, publications. Uh, I mean, have you been looking at some of that stuff too?
1: Sure, and you know the year that I spent um, working for uh, Nate Silver at 538, um, you know that was a a full immersion into the digital world for me, Um, and so it just you know it was a it was a great window into some of the other things that are happening out there. So if you look at uh, you know places like um, Quartz and ProPublica and um, the Marshall Project and 538 and Vox, um, you know Vice, these these places that are Digital pure plays um, they are doing some great storytelling and um, there there's even smaller ones there's even sort of uh, you know there's any number of pockets of one off digital organizations that have you know to manage to muster the resource to tell um, really good stories. I left Grantland off the list and Grantland was a you know a sister publication to us at five thirty eight so so yeah there's um, there's a lot of there's a lot of great stories being told, and I think actually a lot of good opportunity for journalists in in the digi- digital world both in uh, pure play organizations and traditional organizations now.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember this, but, um, I talked with, I've talked with you once before and it was several years ago, uh, when I was a reporter at the Columbus dispatch. Um, I had called to, uh, to talk to you about the encounters series that you all were running at the uh, St. Petersburg times Right at the time. Um, can you, can you talk about those features and why, why you like them?
1: Yeah, sure. And I, and I do remember that conversation. Um, the Encounters series was um, uh, so. I, I'm trying to think of what year it was. It was probably around 2006 or 2007. Um, the editor in St. Pete, Neil Brown, uh, came to me and said he wanted to create uh, a new. Um, he de- he defined it as a front page feature, which we probably wouldn't define it that way today. Mm-hmm. But he defined it as a. He wanted a new one a feature that would be short and it would be mm-hmm. um, interesting narrative stories that that one would not. Um, defined traditionally as news, so it could just be something really meaningful that happened in in an individual's life that day that might resonate with an audience for some reason, um, or a you know a quirky moment that somebody observed on a street corner and could write an effective essay about. And so, we came up with a with a catch-all title called Encounters, where really anybody should be encountering anything. <laughs> Um, and the reader could be encountering, you know, it could, could just be the reader encountering the story or the subject of the story is encountering someone else. It was so it was so broad that it didn't really exclude any idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh, you know, all of the there were so many and still are so many um, creative, talented storytellers uh, at the times that, uh, you know, they, they just came forward one after another with all these ideas. Some of them were first person things that had happened some of them were. They heard about some, you know, girl who was going to have her hair cut for "Locks of Love," and uh, and so they went and watched her do that. Uh, and we had a hard rule that they could be no more than twenty column inches long, so it was probably like seven hundred words. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and my my job as the editor was to to hold a firm line at that length because we didn't want them to grow into projects. It was <laughs> supposed to be a, a really enjoyable five to six minute read
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, for readers, and it was. Um, you know, not all of them were successful. In fact, if, if, if you went back and you had me grade them, I'd probably only give about 60% of them an A mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the other 40% would get some lower grade and some of them got, you know, would get pretty low grades in the end. But, um, but really it, it was fine because it was just one little corner of the front page that we put it on. And if, if it worked, it was a, a real delight for readers um, if it didn't work, you know, no points off. Uh, and we, we didn't put them on the front page if there was some great news story that day that, that should be occupying mm-hmm. that space. So it was a slow news day kind of feature, and it, I think really worked well overall.
0: How about how many did you do? Do you recall?
1: I'd be guessing, Matt, but it's probably, I mean, we we must have done 75 or 100 mm-hmm. of them.
0: Yeah, there's uh, a couple that even, like, you know, it's been, oh, Eight or nine years since I've read them, and there's still some that I recall. Um, the The one that Michael Cruz did on the the father teaching his daughter how to lear, learn to ride a bike, yes, um, which was just fantastic. Um, and Lane uh, DeGregory's piece on the rodeo guy.
1: Oh yeah, couple yeah. that
0: stand out in my mind.
1: Right, you know the Michael Cruz story about the the guy teaching his daughter to ride a bike. There was there was absolutely nothing special about that story and then everything was special about mm-hmm. it like it described it described this moment that you know probably just about every parent has been through of you know setting up your child on two wheels for the first time and letting go and watching them to, you know take those few those first few kind of halting Pedaling steps forward. And uh, and, and it, it was just this absolutely beautiful capturing of a universal moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was, That's definitely one of my favorites.
0: Yeah, I still remember the, one of the last sentences, the little girl says to her dad, never let go. Yeah. So yeah. I, I guess that's a sign of a great story, right? I mean, if I can think about that uh, today, you know, so many years removed. Uh, it's it's a, a great example of some of the stuff that I thought you guys did really well down there. Um now that you're you in Dallas now, are you hoping to do some, some stuff like this, uh, uh, when you know, like really generating? Dallas Morning News has always had a lot of really great storytellers uh, already. I mean, what are you hoping to do there in terms of, you know, breathing some new life into storytelling?
1: Well, it, it's a great question, and I'll, I'll have to answer honestly and say... Yes, I want to do something like that. In fact, I'm trying to figure out a way to do something without totally ripping off the Encounters right. idea because <laughs> I want it to be new. Um, and so, actually, uh, sometime in the next few weeks here, I'm going to have a little open call to the staff to get together and let's talk about um, let's talk about something that can be a recurring um, special feature for for both online and for the front page. Um, and and like what theme. Might we, might we want to pursue, should it be a series of small profiles? Should it be, you know, what, what should it be? But, like, I'd like us to come up with something that's, again, outside the traditional definition of news, um, but where we can go out and stretch out as, uh, as storytellers and, um, and, and show readers, like, help readers feel something or, or help readers have a good time in, um, you know, in a little corner of the website or a little corner of uh, the front page. Maybe once a week.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's um. Well, uh, let's. I want to talk about your year uh, at 5:38. Uh, you said it was a full-on immersion into kind of the digital world. Um, what did you take away in that year that you think can kind of help um, shape the Dallas Morning News? Uh, you know where you guys are going in the future.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, one of the big things was um, I learned a lot about how the online audience, um, wants to be talked to, um, how, how online readers expect you to communicate with them. So it's a, it's a much more freewheeling two-way conversation than we're used to in traditional media. So that, you know, the newspaper model is we, we watch what's happening in our community. We decide what's important, um, we you know write about it or take pictures of it and and give it to an audience, give it to the audience you know on the doorstep in the morning and maybe they write a letter to the editor um, in response and maybe not mm-hmm. but it's essentially kind of a newspaper is essentially telling you here's what we think every day but um, you know online what what we think matters somewhat, but what they think the audience thinks matters um, just as much. Um, and and the audience expects us to know that and expects us to to join a conversation. So, the, the audience for 538 stuff was um, largely male, um, very well educated, uh, usually pretty affluent. These were people who understood um, uh, data, they understood probability, statistics, and so when we wrote data stories at 538 and and posted them, people would weigh in and say. Well, tell me about your methodology here, because I'm questioning, you know, whether really police shootings can be counted this way, or, uh, you know, I think you have, uh, you know, an error in some of your assumptions, and here's why I think that. And some of them would be, you know, they'd be PhDs in economics, um, and they they expected a response, and so that was very instructive to me. Now, not every audience is the 538 audience, but mm-hmm. the online audience is not just looking for us to come down from the mountaintop with tablets and tell them what's important. They want to. They, they, to a large degree, they want to tell us what's important. They want to tell us what we're missing. You know, they they want to basically be a part of the reporting process, and I, I think that's really healthy for not only not only for journalists but for democracy. If we're <laughs> listening to the audience a little more.
0: Right. I remember uh, from my days when I was when when I was still working as a as a daily newspaper reporter, we were always almost trying to figure out who our audience was, and it seems to me with. With the with the web, we can almost know who our audience is. Is that accurate? Do you think? It's it's
1: very accurate. I mean, you can know you can know so much about uh, your online audience. Um, you know, you can know who's looking at a story at, at a given moment and how deeply into the story they're going. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so yeah, there's you know everything can be measured online, and and as as editors and writers, we really have to respond to that. So if we're if we're covering subjects that the audience is telling us through metrics that they don't care about then we need to move on and find something that they do care about and if they tell us they do care about it we should give them more of it um and capitalize on their interest in it and see see what else they need to know um this this whole thing of uh, it's been a very frustrating you know thing to try to guess at what the print audience wants and i i spent a lot of time doing that in my uh in my journalism career and I think you know. Sometimes we've guessed right. I think we that it was a good guess that readers wanted they wanted really good storytelling because you know for for years readers of the St. Pete Times have been telling the editors there that they really appreciate the paper and and think it's a great read. So I think we were right about that. But who knows what we were wrong about? And y- you don't have to guess so much with uh, with online metrics.
0: Mm-hmm. I was gonna you kind of segued for me into like uh, like long form narrative journalism. Um, do do people read that online
1: yeah we know they do i mean it's been it's been studied over and over again it's been proven over and over again um if if you give people something great to read it'll find an audience um and and this is this is true whether you put something in print or or you put it um put it put it in uh, you know ones and zeros digitally if a story is is too long and boring and and not good then nobody will read it no matter what you print it on or no you know okay. but if it's if it's really compelling people going down an escalator with a phone in their hand will will read it and they'll step aside and you know sit down on a bench to read it because it's you know it's just that good so i'm not afraid of of long form storytelling digitally at all oh. um i do understand that you know people reading on a phone are generally looking to take in information pretty quickly and they want it to be useful to them and you know we need to edit um uh, edit our news offerings with that in mind but that does not exclude the possibility of a great long form story and I'm sorry to go on and on but like I just I just read one the other night that um uh one of my uh one of my writers sent along to me about uh this this guy's experience in the Amazon with a uh, with a basically a hallucinogenic drug that must have been Nine thousand words, and I read it um, in bed between about three and four thirty in the morning um, because I, I couldn't stop. Uh, and I read it on my phone.
0: Is this um, he sent you? He wrote it, or so it had been published elsewhere.
1: He, he found it online and okay. sent it to me. yeah Okay.
0: Do you remember what the what the title of the story was?
1: You know, while we're talking, um, I'll find it and I'll let you know. Okay, you know, great. Later in the conversation.
0: Um, one thing I wanted to talk about it, it, when it comes to long form, when it comes to doing this narrative journalism. Um, It so much has helped when you have an editor who really gets it and is able to make the story better Um, And I know Ben Montgomery told me that you are a wonderful diagnostician And that you could read a story and magically know what is not working Um, What are you thinking about as you read a story for the first time that a reporter has turned into you? Something that's going to be long uh, and maybe taken in a narrative direction
1: well, I think I'm really sensitive to, um, to structure, uh, on stories. Um, so there's a little alarm that goes off inside me if, if something is out of order. Um, so for example, if, um, if something happens and then the writer explains to me, um, the three things that happened the day before that, um, to set it up, that uh, an alarm goes off that tells me, why are you, why are we going back in time right now? Um. Uh, so, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know why that is. Um, maybe it was the the books I read as a child, or something were were really well structured, or really poorly structured, and it bothered me. But I just really care about the order in which um, the reader learns things. Um, and then I also care a lot about um, uh, about uh, the meaning of stories, about the the meta story in uh, in. Whatever we're writing about, I mean, I just care a lot about um, not not just the facts that the sort of the, the difficult facts that the reporter has to marshal, but what they amount to. Um, and so, and, and that's one of the reasons I like being an editor so much is I'm not responsible for all of that hard reporting and all that gathering of facts and, and distilling of facts. You know, I get to read a at least a, an attempt at a finished project product and think about whether it's achieving its bigger goals. And that, that's what I really think is the value of, uh, is the beauty of the reporter-editor collaboration is that, that the reporter has that um, responsibility for, uh, for knowing everything there is to know. And then the editor has the responsibility for helping, um, help, just helping to make sure that, the, that all the context is there and all the meaning is in the story. So my favorite collaborations have, have worked well that way.
0: Right. You were the primary editor on Lane uh, DeGregory's The Girl in the Window. Um, what was that process like in the, in the editing process in that story?
1: You know, Lane worked on that story over um, over a period of months. Um, she followed um, this family that had um, adopted um, a severely disabled girl. The girl had been—I'll just, just sort of repeat it for anybody who doesn't know—but the girl had been— um, uh, severely neglected by her birth mother, and um, was developmentally disabled as a result. Um, she was rescued from that terrible situation and then put uh, in the home of this other family that had, you know, not not a lot of money, but just a lot of patience. Um, and so Lane spent, you know, I think months um, visiting this family and spending time with them and and watching them build their relationship with Danielle. And so. You know what Lane brought to the story was what Lane always brings to the story, which is just this incredible empathy for the girl and the family, um, and and the, the just the rich detail about how they lived their lives and how they dealt with her, you know, unpredictable nature, um, and 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 how they how they came to love her. So you know, when you're Lane's editor, it's really it's really not very hard. You just you know she just comes back and tells you these incredible things. Um, I think one thing that I brought to uh, to that um, conversation that helped Lane was I wanted to know about the birth mother. Like I wanted to know how come how come the, the original mom gave up on this girl, mm-hmm. and that was a really hard reporting trip. That I think Lane, you know, L- Lane was a little reluctant to to go out and, and, and face that um, face that mom. And since I didn't have to do it uh <laughs> i had no tr- i had no trouble like uh you know uh talking her into it and she, you know she finally went out and did it i think that was a really important part of the story to see because that i always describe that woman she was the boo radley of that story mm-hmm. she was the you know the dark figure in the shadows that you had to understand in order to know what had happened
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and uh you know lane came back lane and uh, Melissa little went out together and came back with just a brilliant interview and video um with that mom that that really helped um, round out the story. So I guess, uh, you know, my contribution was small, but um, it's another one of those examples of, I think it's good to have um, an editor and reporter working closely together so they can see all sides of something and, and get the most out of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you talk, I mean, in terms of uh, like an, a reporter-editor relationship, how, how can reporters... Really cultivate those with editors as they're as they're coming into the business. And uh, what should reporters be thinking about as they try to find an editor who kind of clicks with them? What should they be looking for?
1: I think you know the first thing they should be looking for is um, is encouragement. Um, you know, if you if you can find somebody who believes in you a little bit and and wants you to. Um, to try some things that are new for you and to stretch out then that's that's a really great gift. But the the best advice I ever heard about um, the editor writer relationship came from Kelly Benham. And what Kelly says is um, you, you need to build your editor out of a lot of people. Like as an editor, I like to think that I meet all of my reporter's needs, like all of all of my reporter's needs so that I'm 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 the sun and the moon to them, right? But that's not really true. Mm-hmm. Um, I may be just the right person uh for for one of my writers to consult with on story structure or something else, but there may be somebody who's better on how to deal with a breaking news assignment or um, a difficult source and and Kelly really recommends getting to know editors around the room who can be who can be good resources in different ways and and the thing is reporters have to do this a little bit on the down low because their supervisors get jealous right mm, right. Um, You know, no no editor wants to think that somebody's going editor shopping, but I think it's actually probably a pretty good practice for for reporters to have a few resources of people they can go to for advice and direction. Mm
0: -hmm. If if a young reporter comes up to you and says, I wanted to be a narrative journalist, um, what would your response be? What would you tell them?
1: Um, I, I would want to talk a little bit about what they mean by that because Mm -hmm. anybody can be a narrative journalist any day they write any story. Um, I I think what young reporters sometimes mean is that they want to tell, you know, long serial narratives that they report over a period of months and write over a period of more months. Right. And I think that those, that's a fine goal. I mean, that's really, that's really uh, uh, rewarding work, but um, you know, one of the greatest narrative journalists working out there is Tom French. And Tom will tell you that narratives can be done, on deadline any day. Mm-hmm. And so that's where that's what I would encourage them to understand and to start with tell me your tell me your daily news stories as stories. Um it was uh Chip Scanlon from uh used to be at the Pointer Institute. He used to say, No child ever told her father, Daddy, tell me an article <laughs> right? So I I would want to get uh, young writers out there to, to, to go out and, and tell me a little narrative story. Give me two paragraphs of of straight narrative writing about something that happened in your police story and, and you're a narrative journalist. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah um, and Tom had the uh, the narrative on deadline uh, seminar down at Pointer that I actually got to attend one year when I was at the dispatch and and you can do that on a daily basis um, and uh, a lot of yeah so I, I think I think you're right that a lot of people when they say I want to be a narrative journalist they want to write big long things but you can do that and you're gonna have to start doing it on a you know the small stuff too you can't just jump in. And do an eight thousand word story uh, right off the bat. So,
1: so so when you went to that seminar and you went back to the dispatch, like did, you know, what did it turn out to be useful? Like, were you able to put it into practice in it, your work?
0: It actually did. Um, uh, I was lucky. Jim Sheeler was there that week, and mm-hmm. uh, actually, Jim and I just went to the Indians game uh, earlier this week. <laughs> He's at Case Western Reserve now, oh, uh, nice. but he t- he talked about his feature obituaries, um, and. Uh, and it was before Final Sleut, the book had come out. The stories had already run. Um, and I went back and actually started feature obituaries at the dispatch and did. I kind of, I actually did rip him off. His stories were called A Colorado Life uh, and we called ours an Ohio life or something like that. Right, right. Um, but I, I did about, I don't know, 15 or 16 of them before I ended up leaving the newspaper uh, to come to Ashland. Um, so, but no, it was, yeah, it was fantastic. At that point in time, I was in features. Um so there wasn't a lot of daily stuff going on i think i was approved to go to that seminar when i was still on the news side uh and then like in like the three months in between the, when i actually went uh i got moved up to features so um but yeah we were able to definitely uh i started doing those uh, obituaries and i would do those um, not necessarily in one day but you know i would turn them around pretty quickly so Hmm. Um, and it was doable. So, and I'm teaching feature writing this fall, and I'm going to make my students write those types of stories. So, um, uh, we'll see how we'll see how it goes. So,
1: well, um, we're talking about short narratives, but I promised you I'd tell you the name of this long narrative that I read the other yes. night. Um, the piece was called "The Root of All Things." It's by Nathan Thornburg, mm-hmm. and it appeared on uh, Roads uh, and it's about Nathan Thornburg's experience with uh, ayahuasca, which is a—it's a, um, uh, it, it's a uh, basically a hallucinogenic plant combination used in, um, you know, healing and spiritual ceremonies in the Amazon. Um, and it's just an absolutely mind-blowing hmm. piece of writing.
0: Oh, great! I will definitely check it out, and we will definitely link to it on our website here. Um, you started out as a reporter as well um, and wrote some great stories. Uh, I read a couple from the St. Petersburg Times, which Ben uh, sent my way. Farewell, My Lovey, and uh, Battlefield Tilden, 1997, uh, were a couple that he sent. Um, can you talk about maybe just a really little bit about those stories? You don't have to go real in depth, but then also, kind of, what type of stories were you attracted to as a reporter? And are those the same type of stories that you're attracted to now as an editor?
1: Sure. Um, Well, Farewell, My Lovey um, was a story about the death of a woman named Lovey Dowdle. And um, she had spent her whole life um, uh, living—she basically lived her whole life with her twin sister, Dovey Dowdle, they were Southerners, uh, and they neither had ever married. Um, they lived apart just for a few months one time when one of them got a job out of town, but basically they were just two, um, uh, two sisters who need, needed each other. They spent their lives together, and then uh, one day in, um, in St. Pete, um, Lovey died, and there was, a, <laughs> there was an, uh, an obituary notice in the paper, and Mary Everts from the St. Pete Times brought it to me and said, you've got to write about Lovey and Dovey. Uh, and so it, it was really, it was a very simple story about um, going to a funeral with, uh, with an old lady who basically looked into a casket and saw herself, hmm. was the idea. Um, uh, but the, the reporting lessons were, th- these, these are eternal lessons of reporting, just just show up mm-hmm. and stay there and, and go where the source goes. So I went to, to Dovey's house on the day of the funeral and introduced myself and the, the funeral home sent over a car uh, to take her to the funeral, and I politely asked her if, if it would be all right if I joined her in the car, and she said I could, so I rode with her to the funeral and stood behind her as she bade her sister goodbye. So just being there and being close made it possible to get, you know, a few a few nice details that made the story meaningful mm-hmm. for people. Um, and, you know, that absolutely is the kind of story that um, that appeals to me as a writer because it's um, it takes place, for one thing, um, outside the hurly burly of um, of like competitive news reporting, like mm-hmm. sort of sort of like a presidential press conference or something, would be the absolute worst environment for me to work in as a reporter,
2: right.
1: <laughs> you know, because it's not private and um, and it's very controlled. Uh, this was a very personal, non-sort of media spectacle kind of situation, mm-hmm. um, uh, and 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 I think you know one that's one that's full of personal meaning for the people involved. Mm-hmm. Um, the other story you mentioned, Battlefield Tilden, was about um, a big controversy in Tilden, Nebraska, um, which is the, uh, the birthplace of L. Ron Hubbard, mm-hmm. the founder of Scientology. Um, the, the controversy was whether, um, whether the town would accept a park called the Way to Happiness Park, uh, donated by Scientology as a way of honoring um, uh, L. Ron Hubbard. And, and and you know, th- why would they not accept a park? Well, because it was going to be, there were going to be plaques uh, outlining some of um, Hubbard's principles of the way to happiness. And there were some people in town who disagreed that this was the way to happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them thought it was the way to insanity. Uh, and so they didn't want this park. And so I wrote about the the controversy there. And um, I like that story a lot because... Um, uh, while there was a sort of big media or big story kind of controversy at the center of it, it played out among everyday people uh, in this town who had very differing views uh, on the place. Plus, just traveling out of town and going to going to an out-of-the-way place that other journalists don't go is always fun. Um, so, you know, I, I think um, in, bo- in both of those cases, what those things have in common is each one of them has um, – each one of them has tension as a story. You know the tension of a very old woman saying goodbye to her lifelong friend, um, and you know what it means for her going forward. And then the tension involved in you know a, a, a you know deeply political decision about whether to to accept money in a town. So a good story has usually some conflict in it. So I look for
0: that. Right. Um, going back to the to the Lovey uh, story. Um, you mentioned getting into that, that personal space. And I know a, a lot of beginning reporters, at least a lot of my students, um, they really start feeling like they don't belong there, like they should stay away. Um, how, how do you help get a reporter, uh, especially a young reporter, beyond that kind of fear that they're invading somebody's um, intimate space when you have to be there in order to get that type of that story and that emotion?
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, one good way is to tell them they failed if they don't. You
2: know? <laughs> right. Uh,
1: um, because, you know, most of us are raised to be pretty polite. I was. Uh, and so, you know, insinuating myself into such a private um, situation isn't anything I would do in a, you know, in my personal day. But in my work, it's really important to be able to do that. And I think I needed teachers who... I know that I needed teachers to tell me, listen, you need to be a little more pushy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you need to be a little more assertive about getting where you want. You know, never impolite, never, never um, inappropriate. But, um, but boy, get yourself uh, into the situation or you'll never be able to report on it. So, um, yeah, I think, I think, you know, the stick sometimes is, is a good, you know, is a good way to go with young reporters. Just make them do it.
0: Yeah. Do you ever miss reporting?
1: yeah i do i really do um i uh, there was a story that happened here um just the other day <laughs> where um somebody some guy uh the, the police were trying to pull him over and i guess he had a whole bunch of um what he later called product in his car so it was, it was like a, a few thousand dollars worth of uh, methamphetamine or something in the car and he didn't want the police to find it so he didn't pull over um, and for whatever reason, he didn't flee either. He just kind of kept moseying down the interstate at about forty miles an hour, and the police didn't know what they were dealing with, so they they stayed back a few feet. They didn't want to pull up next to him because who knows maybe he's armed or whatever uh, and 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 this low speed chase unfolded between Dallas and Fort Worth <laughs> and it was just like it was just this really fascinating moment of like the criminal justice system conveniently beating itself down for us to watch it up close, because it was on live TV, mm-hmm. and everybody in town was watching this, this slow-speed chase, wondering, why aren't the cops just ramming this guy? And it's like, you could almost see, like, you could clearly read the roads, road signs as they were passing, because they were going so slow, and you could almost imagine if, like, somebody had gone by in a bicycle, that they would have passed the whole entourage. <laughs> um, and, and that's when, I, I kind of wished I was reporting then, because, like, that, to me, is an invitation to a writer, to describe things mm-hmm. in, in a really colorful, interesting way. Um, so I, I missed I missed doing that kind of work on that day, but um, I had a lot of fun, you know, being one of the ones who says, "Oh my gosh, isn't this interesting?" You know, like let's get a really good writer on this and and see if we can tell a good story about it. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed it.
0: That was an interview I did with Mike Wilson in May of 2015. Wilson has just been named Deputy Editor for Enterprise in Sports at the New York Times. As usual, I've put links to all of the stories that we talked about on the website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, Podcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y Podcast. Gangary the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's digital journalism program and the College of Arts and Sciences. Our music comes from Audionautix. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.